Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33, and we're going to uh, cover verses 4 through 26 tonight, the rest of the chapter. We started last Wednesday with chapter 33 and verses 1 through 3. It was a call to pray. Uh, God told uh, Ju- Judah that, that he was going to wipe them out or you know, destroy the city because of their sin and then build it back up again. And the people thought, well, how can you do that, Lord? And he says, well, call to me. He says, I'm going to show you great and mighty things such as you do not know. And uh, so we pick up the continuation of the chapter here. In chapter ter- uh, 33, again, we have the continued themes of destruction and restoration. And even though the city would be devastated, according to verses 2 through 5, God would bring health and peace to it in verses 6 through 9. Verses 1 through 26 focus almost totally on the future restoration of Judah uh, in in its animals and shepherds uh, in verses 12 through 13, uh, the future restoration of the Davidic kingdom in verses 14 through 16, and the restoration of the covenant in verses 19 through 26. The words that would give hope and comfort to those who are in captivity even during the experience of punishment, God would Again, give them hope and comfort. Uh, God's love and grace are so great that even in captivity, he gave his people hope for the future. And eventually, this hope, their hope, would be fulfilled in the Messiah, verses 14 through 16, who would deliver them. So let's begin with chapter 33, verse 4. And it reads, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and the sword. So in desperation, those, those people who were defending the city would have destroyed their houses and piled the rubble to fill the gaps in the city wall and to reinforce the wall. Because the city wall will be filled with dead bodies, the purpose of the destruction of their own houses may have been to dispose of the dead bodies. And in this coming battle with the Babylonians, getting uh, to cemeteries, which were all outside the city, would be blocked. In God's anger, he would hide his face from the city, verse 5 says, and then he would listen to the people's cry for help. The image of God hiding his face, often found in the Old Testament, is used to describe his anger and and his withdrawal, the withdrawal of his favor and his protection. Look at verse 5. They come to fight with the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, but only to fill their places with the dead bodies of men whom I will slay in my anger and my fury, all for whose wickedness I have hidden my face from this city." So God had turned his back on Judah, but it's because Judah had turned their backs on God. Earlier in in Judah's history, when they were faced with with a great army from Ethiopia that was invading the land, Asa was the king at that time. But Asa hadn't been reigning for very long, and when he saw this, this huge army of over a million men invading, he went to the Lord. And he said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Second Chronicles 14, 11. In other words, he said, Lord, it doesn't make any difference to you 
You know, if we're weak or strong, whether there's many of us or a few of us, help us, Lord, because we're going out in your name against this enemy. We're outnumbered. Their army is much bigger than ours. We don't have the strength, but that doesn't matter to you. And in your name, God, we're going to go up against this huge army, so don't let man prevail against you. And, you know, that goes for everything that we go through. You know, whether we're outnumbered, we don't have strength, you know, we're weak, it doesn't matter to God, whatever we're going through, because it's in his name that we're going through it. And he fights our battles for us. We're going to go up against some huge affliction, some huge situation or circumstances. But God, may you prevail. So Asa went out, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord defeated the Ethiopians. And Asa was victorious. And as he was coming back from the war, again, victorious over the armies, a prophet of God came out to meet Asa. And he gave him a prophecy. And he said, the Lord is with you while you are with him. And if you ask him, he'll be found. If you seek him, he'll be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. That's the principle. If we forsake God, if we turn our backs on God, he's going to forsake us and turn his back on us. The Lord will be with you if you'll be with him. And if you seek the Lord, you'll find him. But if you forsake him, he'll forsake you. Now, Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem and Judah had come to the place where they had forsaken God. And now God has forsaken them. And once again, they're facing a powerful army, which is the Babylonian army. They're going to go out against the Babylonian army, but not under God's protection because they had turned away from God. They're going to go out in their own strength. They're going to go out in their own enthusiasm, and they're going to get wiped out by the Babylonians. And that is because the Lord has turned his back on them, just like they have turned their back on him. So the city is going to be destroyed. Their enemy is going to get the victory. But that's not the end of the story. And for those who are the people of God, darkness is never the end of the story. The end of the story for us is always that they lived happily ever after in the kingdom of God in the wonders and the glories of his kingdom eternally with the Lord. Eternal enjoyment and wonder of the kingdom of God. That's how it ends for us. So Jeremiah began to prophesy about that wonderful day of the Lord when the Lord himself would come and he would reign over the earth from Jerusalem. And so the Lord promises his people healing and joy. Look at verse 6. Behold, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace, uh, honor, uh, uh, peace and truth. He says, I'm going, to bring this, I'm going to bring you health. I'm going to bring you healing. I'm going to heal you. Now, sin, understand, sin is like a sickness. When he says here, I will bring you health and I will bring you healing, it's because sin is like a sickness. And you know what? It's 100% fatal. We're all going to die as a result of sin. Because of Adam and Eve's sin and passed on that sin nature to us. A person who's living is sin and sin is sick. Because they're doing things that are destroying them. Like an illness, a terminal illness. It destroys you. It wipes you out. And sin is the same thing. Sin is destroying that person, and unfortunately, many times, their sin hurts other people. 
And we don't seem to realize that, that our sin hurts other people. And, and, and that's why you know, God likens it to an illness. So, you know, they hurt other people, but they don't have the power to quit that sin. And a lot of people, you know, you know they, they, they get into vices, they get into things, they get into evil things that, that you know, they think they have the control over. And they'll tell you, no, I, I got this. I can handle this. And how many of them turn into drug addicts? How many of them turn into alcoholics? Because I got this. They think they have it. You know, that's the deceiving thing about sin. That's the thing that Satan doesn't tell you, what this is going to do to you, how this is going to turn out in your life and the people that you're going to hurt behind it. You see, he, he's doing things. The person that, that, that is living in sin, they're doing things that are destroying them. And Paul uh, speaks about this in Romans chapter 7, uh, and I'm going to read it to you from the New Living Translation, verses seven, chapter 7, verses 15 uh, through, through 25. Listen to what Paul, how Paul explains this. Paul says, I don't really understand myself because I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I, I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing the wrong. It's sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what's wrong. I love God's law, that's his word, with all my heart. He says, but there's another power within me that's at war with my mind. And this power makes me a slave to sin that's still in me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Notice he says, who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? Notice he said who. He didn't say what. What thing or what, what courses can I take that will deliver me from this, this sin that I have in my life? He said who. It takes a person and that person is Jesus Christ. Who will free me from this sin? or from this life that's dominated by sin and death, he said, thank God, the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. Sin is, is so powerful. It, it rules over who you are. And like Paul said, I want to do right. I know what, what's right, and, and I know the right thing to do, but I end up doing what's wrong. And that's the battle between wanting to do what's right and sin. The sinner is in bondage to his sinful behavior. He wants to stop, but he can't. And worse than that, sin is progressive. It will continue to go on. It will continue to move forward and get worse. And it seems that there's no real dormant place in life. Sin just doesn't stop in one place. It continues to, go, to progress. Life goes on. And if you're living a life of sin, it's progressing deeper into sin and it's progressing deeper into your soul and you'll get worse and worse and you just don't stay dormant or sin doesn't just stand still in your life. The same is true, though, of righteousness. There's no dormant position in righteousness where it just doesn't where it just stop. We're becoming more like Christ, more righteous each day as we walk with him or we're becoming less righteous. 
but you just don't stand still either way. You're either moving in one direction or the other. And by the grace of God, hopefully we're moving towards the prize for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. More and more, we are turning into the image of Christ, hopefully. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul said, Even though our outward man is perishing, it's old, it's dying, it's decaying, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. You see, there's a progression into that same image by the power of the Holy Spirit that's working in us. So it's important in our Christian walk that we're progressing and that we're growing. Because you see, if we're not growing, we're backsliding. And if we're not growing, we'll start to die. Sin is like a sickness. And that's why God said, I will bring healing and health to you. Sin is like a sickness, and the nation of Israel was sick, just like our nation is sick today. But God is promising here to cure cure Judah, Israel, to heal them from the thing that's destroying them and to give them an abundance of peace and truth. Verse 7. And I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and will rebuild those places as the first. So he's going to bring Judah and Israel together. Remember, they split into the northern and southern kingdom. He's going to bring them together and he's going to restore them back to what they used to be. God is going to rebuild the nation and it's going to be like it was before the kingdom was divided. Verse 8. He says, I will cleanse them from all of their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all of their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. So that washing and that cleansing is from the corruption of sin and from the corruption of the world. Sin is like a stubborn dirt, man. It, it, it clings to you and, you and you just can't wash it off. But what can wash away my sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. God's Son cleanses us from all sin. 1 John, 7, 1 John 1, 7. So God said, I will cleanse them all from their iniquity. Verse 9. Then it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and an honor before all the nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I do them, and they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. So their, their reformation, their restoration would be just as, uh, just as much worthy of praise as it was worthy of shame in its sin. And once Jerusalem is rebuilt and Judah's uh, inhabited again, he says, it will be to me a name of joy. It will be just as pleasing to God as they were provoking to him when they were in sin. It will be a praise and an honor when it's restored and given peace and health and safety. It will be an honor before all the nations. So being restored, they will glorify God by their obedience to him. And you know what? That's the best way to glorify God. It's through our obedience. Not through our service, not the words that we say, not the things that we do, not what we do. It's through obedience. You know, and, and, and again, as a parent, this is, this is so easy to understand. Because when we, when we ask our children to do something and, and we're teaching them you know, about obeying, 
when you, want, when you tell them to do something, what is it you want them to do? To do what you told them. When they come back and say, oh, I did this and I did that and I did this over here. Well, that's not what I wanted you to do. I wanted you to do what I told you to do. But yet we do the same thing. But that's what God really honors the most is our obedience. Because it doesn't do, it doesn't really do us any good to, to not do what God tells us to do. And so, again, God loves it. When, when again, we, we're obedient to him and, and, you know, it brings him honor. So, again, obedience glorifies God. All right? This renewed nation is going to be as much of a, as a good re- reputation to religion as it was to, uh, again, a, a reproach, a shame to God. So the nations are going to hear all the good that God has done for them. All the surrounding nations will hear the good that God did for Judah and Israel. And, and what he did for them by his grace and of all the good that he's done for them by his providence. That is, by his will, what he's done in their life. The wonders of them coming back, the captives coming back from Babylon, will be just as famous as, the one, as their wonders when they were delivered out of Egypt. And God's people are going to fear, they're going to tremble, and they're going to be surprised and afraid of offending such a good God and losing his favor. As Hosea said in chapter 3, verse 5, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness. And the word fear is reverence. It's not a, a cowardly fear. And it, no, it's a reverence. They're going to reverence God and his goodness for who he is and what he's done for them. Again, the neighboring nations, they're going to fear God because of Jerusalem's prosperity. They're going to see what God did for them. And they're going to look at the growing greatness of the Jewish nation, Jewish nation as really amazing. And they are going to be afraid of making Israel their enemies. And right now, Israel has a lot of enemies. And one day, God is going to show the world the greatness of Israel because they're God's people. It's God's holy land. Verses 10 and 11. Thus says the Lord, again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say it is desolate without man and without beast in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who will say, praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever. And of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. For I will cause the captives of the land to return as at first, says the Lord. So when the city, is, when the city was destroyed by the Babylonians, the destruction was so complete that there was nobody living in the land. There was nobody left in the city there. It was just ruins. And the streets that used to be filled with children playing and laughing and calling out to each other and, and filled with people, you know, as they conducted their business, is now quiet. There's nothing heard. They don't hear the people. They don't hear their children laughing and, and, and playing. It's just it's strangely silent. Because that wasn't a normal thing. Now it's an abnormal silence that was over the ruins of that once great city, Jerusalem. And the people who saw the ruin, they saw that in that condition, they felt it could never be rebuilt or lived in again. But notice the Lord promises in verses 11 through 13 that in this place, 
that's lying in ruins in this place that's deserted, in this place that's lying in silence like a dead body. There's nobody living in it. There's nobody conducting business in it anymore. The children aren't laughing and playing. All of this, he says, like a dead body, he says, I am going to cause sounds of joy and laughter in it again. He said, the joyful voices of bridegrooms and brides will be heard again. He said, also, along with the joyous songs of the people, bringing their thanksgiving offerings to the Lord. He says, they're going to sing. They're going to give thanks to the Lord because he's good. Because his faithful love endures forever. And he says, I will restore. God says, I will restore the prosperity of this land to what it was before. Verses 12 through 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place, which is desolate, without man and without beast, in all its cities, there shall be a dwelling place uh, of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down. In the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south, in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, the flocks shall again pass under the hands of him who counts them, says the Lord. Now, the hillsides there that are now barren, and they're empty, where the shepherds used, once took their flocks out there to pasture, He says, they're going to be covered again with the flocks of sheep. When the shepherds would bring his flock into the fold at night, the shepherd would stand at the gate or the opening of the the, um, fold where the sheep would come in. The shepherd would stand at the gate and they would pass through. And as they passed through the gate, he would count them to make sure they're all there. And he would examine them for cuts that they might have gotten through the day or any kind of injury that they might have gotten through the day and, and, and attend to them if they needed attention. And in Psalm 23, when he said uh, that they would anoint them with oil, that was the oil that they would put on them for healing. So they referred to also here as counting them. He counted them. He made sure that all the sheep are accounted for. And remember, Jesus gave the story of the parable of the 99 sheep and one was missing, they would count them as they came in. So, the, uh, so a place for the flocks, God will, re- will, will make again a place for their activity, and people will occupy that area again that was once destroyed. Verses 14 and 15, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of of Israel and to the house of Judah. Notice, that thing that I've promised, he says, I'm going to bring it to pass. Verse 15, In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. Now that branch of righteousness speaks of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming. In other words, coming. That, that's when God's going to fulfill the gracious promise that he made to Israel and Judah about restoring the land. And these prophecies weren't fulfilled when they returned from their Babylon uh, captivity. These prophecies haven't been fulfilled yet. These prophecies are still to be fulfilled. This is the prophecy of the Messiah, this branch of righteousness the descendant of David that's that's going to reign. Verse 15 says he'll execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. It's a prophecy dealing with the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
When Jesus sets up his kingdom on the earth, the Old Testament scriptures are filled with prophecies about the Messiah's reign. And this, is, and this is what created the difficulty for the Jews, why they don't believe in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Because, you see, the Jews' idea about the Messiah was based on the prophecies that dealt with the reign of the Messiah. In other words, he was, it says that he would reign in power and glory over the earth. And it says that his reign would be forever. And that the prophecies talked about a renewed earth. But when Jesus was crucified... To the Jews, that looked like the opposite happened. I mean, wait a minute. It says that Jesus was going to rule with power and glory on the earth. He's going to reign forever. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And then they see Jesus crucified and buried. You know, it, 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 it was totally the opposite thing to them. And so, you know, it's not what they were thinking and expecting of the Messiah. So, when the Jews saw Jesus crucified on the cross, man, that was a huge stumbling block for the Jews when they saw Jesus crucified. Again, because the prophecy said the Messiah would reign forever and there would be no end to his reign. But again, he was speaking of his eternal kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. And the way the Jews reconciled these different prophecies is that they spiritualized the prophecies of his suffering and death, that they meant something else. They didn't take those prophecies literally. They only took literally those prophecies of his reign. So his ruling and his reigning forever and, and with power and glory, they took that as literal. But the death and the crucifixion, they took that as figurative. They spiritualized it. It must mean something else. Again, so uh, look at verse 16. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Not only will the Lord be called the Lord, our righteousness, but the city will be called the Lord, our righteousness. The people who dwell around the Lord will also bear his name, the Lord, our righteousness. So the city is called the Lord, our righteousness, because the glory in Jehovah is their righteousness. He's the one who imparts righteousness. You see, in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength. And we are made the righteousness of God in Christ. The inhabitants of Jerusalem will have this name of the Messiah so much in their mouths that they themselves will be called by it. If you and I have any righteousness, it's in Jesus Christ. It's not our own. We have none. It's not our own righteousness. It's, it, he's our righteousness. Paul said in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. You see, when we became Christians, when we were born again and, and, and we received Christ, we received his righteousness. And it's because of his righteousness that the Father receives me and accepts me. Verses 17 and 18. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me to kindle grain offerings and to sacrifice continually. So these verses, 17 and 18, contain a promise that the Davidic and Levitical lines in Israel would be permanent. As a renewal of the covenant promised to David. 
God is affirming here that a descendant of David would always be on Israel's throne. Because no descendant has been on Israel's throne for centuries. Nor has Israel been a monarchy for centuries. One of the several conclusions, though, can be made from the promise in 17. Again, several conclusions can be made from verse 17. One is that God's promises failed. Second, or God changed his mind and withdrew the promise because there have been no monarchies you know, since then. Uh, or Jeremiah wasn't a true prophet because this hasn't come to pass. Or he was only speaking his mind. But because of God's word. And God's word is always the standard by which we judge things and we verify things. Because God's word is infallible, those conclusions aren't acceptable. They're not acceptable. The best interpretation favored by many is that Jesus, who is a descendant of David through his earthly genealogy, is the fulfillment of this, of verse 16, and many other messianic uh, passages. So Jeremiah's prophecy wasn't fulfilled completely when Judah was restored, but fulfilled in Jesus Christ in his present reign and in his future return. So regarding the promised restoration of the Levitical priests and sacrifices in verse 18, this is the only place where it's suggested. And those who follow the hermeneutical or the interpretation principle that prophecy is to be interpreted literally whenever it's possible usually uh, interpret verse 18 to mean that the Old Testament sacrificial system would be literally reinstituted at a future time, and we see them preparing to do that. But it would be contrary to the biblical explanation that, that Jesus abolished the sacrificial system once and for all, because Jesus was that final sacrifice once and for all. There was no need for any more sacrifices. Jesus, as king priest, would fulfill the promise, the promises of verses 17 and 18. As the psalmist said in Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You, Christ, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. If the promise of a Davidic king is considered to be fulfilled in Christ, then it's not unreasonable to conclude that Jesus is in his priestly role, fulfills the Levitical priestly role as well. Now notice, these sacrifices, they will be in memory of Jesus Christ in that day. Jesus Christ, who was the Lamb of God, who gave his life for us. They will be looking back in commemoration of all of those sacrifices, all of those, those 1,400 years of sacrifices under the Jewish law, we're pointing forward to one day when that ultimate cross, Jesus Christ, would die upon the cross. So, again, those sacrifices will not be, to be offered to cover our sins in order to make a covering because Jesus Christ gave his life to make a covering once and for all. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is complete. There is no more. There's no need for more. So the sin offering during the millennial age that, that's being talked about here will be a reminder to us of the Lamb of God, the once and for all sin who gave himself for our sins. In the Old Testament, those, those sacrifices, they were symbolic. Those Old Testament sacrifices for 400 years were pointing forward to the cross. But now, during the millennial age, it will be a memorial, memorial looking back at the cross. 
verses 19 through 22. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will be not so there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my, uh, my ministers. Verse 22, As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of, these, uh, of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. So God said here, As long as the sun comes up every day, my covenant will stand. God has established the covenant, and he fulfilled that covenant, and Jesus will reign. And Jeremiah says, as, God says, as, as the stars of the sky cannot be counted, and the sand on the seashore can't be counted or measured, I'm going to multiply the descendants of my servant David and the Levites who ministered before me. So God's going to multiply his people. Verses 23 through 27. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not considered what these, have spoke, what these people have spoken, saying? The two families which the Lord has chosen, he has also cast them off. Thus they have despised my people, as if they should no more be a, ba- a nation before them. Thus says the Lord, If my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then... I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captives to return and will have mercy on them. So in verses 23 through 27, the Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, Jeremiah, have you noticed what the people are saying? You know, they're saying that the Lord chose Judah and Israel and then abandoned them. And they're sneering and they're saying that Israel is not worthy to be counted as a nation. But notice, this is what the Lord says, Jeremiah. God says, I would no more reject my people than I would change my laws that govern night and day, earth and sky. He said, I will never abandon the descendants of Jacob or David, my servant, or change the plan that David's descendants will rule the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead, he says, I'm going to restore them to their land, and I'm going to have mercy on them. The Lord asked Jeremiah a question. Jeremiah, did you know people were saying that that I have rejected the two families, Judah and Israel? The two families had been taken to be David and Levi, First, and then Jacob and David, and then Jacob and Levi, and then Israel and Judah. But the context would suggest Israel and Judah. They would be most likely, because they assumed that God had rejected the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And other nations despised the people and no longer considered them to be a nation. So in closing, the closing verses repeat the thought of verse 19 and 20. Where he says again here, he says that if God's covenant with them, if if day and night stopped and the fixed laws of heaven and earth, if they could be broken, then he said he would reject Jacob's descendants as his people and David's descendants to rule over the tribes. So we know that day and night is not going to stop and the the forces of heaven aren't going to stop either. The stars are going to shine. They're going to be out there. They're going to be out there all the time moon and sun, all of those things. So they're fixed in heaven. 
So those things are not going to be broken, which says the covenant that he made with the people are not, is not going to be broken either. In spite of what seemed to be a hopeless situation at the time, that is the destruction of, of Judah and Israel, God could announce, hey, the restoration of the people and his compassion for them because of his sovereign control over events and people will be back. He will bring them back. Even though it's declared here wholeheartedly, we need to remember that a renewal of a relationship between God and Israel could only be possible through God's forgiveness and grace. That is the only way that man can have a relationship with God. We have to seek his forgiveness for our sins and then God's grace and mercy is then given to us and those sins are forgiven and then we can have a relationship with God. But sinful man cannot have a holy relationship with a holy God. Our sin must be dealt with. It must be forgiven. That was the purpose of the cross. Jesus died for our sins. We come to the cross. We say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. And, and, and you know, I, I want to you know, be yours. I want to receive you. And then we are received, the Bible says, into the kingdom of heaven. We become God's children. So again, that, that forgiveness comes only from God. That's the only way we can be forgiven of our sins. It's not what we can do. It's not what we can give. It's what Jesus has done for us. Father, we come before you in Jesus' mighty name, Father. And we thank you that, Father, that you sent your Son to die on the cross for us that we might have the forgiveness of sin. And Jesus, we thank you that you came willingly. You didn't argue. You didn't fuss and moan. You didn't, you didn't hesitate to give up your place in glory, to give up your place in the heavens that you created. You gave them up willingly to come here, to put on flesh and blood, to show us who God is and what he's like. And to die upon a cross for us. You who knew no sin, who never sinned, but you took on our sin that we might be forgiven of our sin. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would teach us more about Christ and his love, and his word. And that every day we become more and more like Christ till the day we are with him in eternity. Lord, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.